morning. It's great to be with you all. Um, I think I'm the, the last West Hills pastor to, to make it here, so it's, it's a great privilege to be here with you all and to worship with you. I don't know if you know this, but we pray for you all the time, and so I feel like there is this affection that I already have, even though I haven't met most of you, for this church, and, and I love the spirit of Christ that's here. You guys are wonderful people, and um, I, I'm just so grateful and privileged to be able to stand here and, and open God's word for you this morning. Um, but before I do that, let me open us in prayer. Father, you are our king. You are the king of the universe. We want you to be the, kings, the king of our hearts as well. Will you please humble us? If we have proud hearts, would you break them? If we have broken hearts, would you heal them? Lord, I ask that you would intervene this morning, that you would feed your sheep, that you would speak to us through your word, and Holy Spirit, would you move in us in a mighty way through your great power. Glorify your son, Jesus Christ. And in his name we pray, amen. If you've read your Bible for a while, you've probably noticed this phenomenon that happens as you're reading. Sometimes you see there's a, 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 visible, a visible reality kind of on the surface of the text of Scripture. But simultaneously, there's also an invisible reality in that same scripture. Let me give an example I heard once from another pastor. The Christmas story. So in the Christmas story, we're very familiar with this if we've been in church for a while. You have Mary and Joseph, and there's little baby Jesus wrapped in swaddling clothes, and there's fluffy animals around, and lovely shepherds come and visit, and we all sing Silent Night, right? Really peaceful and serene, not, no crying he made in the, in the manger, right? It's really, it's really beautiful and wonderful. And that's, that's the visible reality of the Christmas story. But simultaneously, the, something was happening that was invisible at the same time as that Christmas story. We get a glimpse of it in Revelation chapter 12. In Revelation 12, John gets a vision of what was actually going on behind the scenes of that birth story. There is a woman, a virgin, on a birthing stool and, and crouched at the, the base of the birthing stool is a horrific dragon waiting for this baby to be born so that he can consume him. So like lovely shepherds and fluffy lambs, visible reality. Invisible reality laid on to, underneath that horrific dragon, right? Visible and invisible together. They run concurrently in the scriptures. And I think that we have that in our text this morning, a visible reality and an invisible reality. And we're going to talk about that from John chapter 13. So if you've got your Bibles, go ahead and make your way over to John chapter 13. Before I read our text, I'm going to set the context for what's happening in this book so far. Jesus' public ministry has come to an end. It ended when he came into Jerusalem riding on a donkey and all of the people of the city and all of the, the pilgrims who had come to celebrate the Feast of Passover, they were all shouting Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And they were waving palm branches, which were, were symbols of Israelite nationalism. They thought, this is our king. He's coming to overthrow Rome. Finally, we're going to be free and liberated. They figured, man, this guy can raise the dead. He just raised Lazarus from, from the dead. So this guy is a great king. He's the kind of king that can really conquer Rome because, I mean, if we die in battle following this king, guess what? He can raise us from the dead. We're like in the army of the undead here. This is an incredible king, they thought. But Jesus would not be that kind of king because 
His kingdom is not that kind of kingdom. It's not a conquering kingdom in a, in a war sense. It's a conquering kingdom in a spiritual sense. So they're, they're, his ministry has ended, and now he's making his way with his disciples, his 12 disciples, to the upper room, where he's going to have a long discourse with them. It's going to cover several chapters in the book of John. He's going to talk to them about the Holy Spirit and his Father and this mansion that he's preparing for them and this, this place, this paradise that he is, he is getting ready for them. And as they're walking to the upper room, his 12 disciples, who don't quite get it yet, they're debating. They're debating. Luke, the, the Gospel of Luke tells us what they were debating on the way. They were debating which of them was the greatest disciple. Which is kind of odd because, I mean, this isn't the, that kind of kingdom, right? So they just, they haven't got it yet, right? But they're debating, you know, hey, I'm going to sit at Jesus' right hand. You can sit on his left hand. We've got this, right? And, and they're, they're asking each other, who is the greatest? It's kind of like high school, right? When you're in high school, you try to size everybody up. That's what they're doing. And as they're walking through the swollen streets of Jerusalem, by swollen, I mean the population had swelled, one historian says that the population was probably 1.5 million people for Passover. That's Jews from all over, Jews and God-fearing Gentiles from all over the Roman Empire had come to Jerusalem to celebrate Passover. And so this little ancient city is now full of people. And everybody was supposed to bring a lamb with them too, right? Every family unit was to bring a lamb. And so you have probably, I'm, I'm guessing, 300,000 sheep in the city plus 1.5 million people or so, in an ancient city with no sewage. <laughs> right. So, I mean, this is a, these are dirty streets. These are dirty streets. I, I raised a lamb in 4-H in high school. They're not clean, right? They're not very clean animals. So you have all of this muck in the streets of Jerusalem and these 12 disciples and Jesus going to their upper room. So you can imagine their feet are probably a little bit icky, to say the least. And then they arrive at the upper room, and this is where our text picks up. John chapter 13, starting in verse 1, and I'll read through verse 20. Now before the feast of Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered him, What I am doing you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. Peter said to him, You shall never wash my feet. Jesus said to him, If I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, The one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean, and you are clean, but not every one of you, for he knew who, who was to betray him. That is why he said, not all of you are clean. When he had washed their feet 
and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and right you are, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. I'm not speaking of all of you. I know whom I have chosen, but the scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. I am telling you this now, before it takes place, that when it does take place, you may believe that I am he. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever receives me, receives the one I sent, receives me. And whoever receives me, receives the one who sent me. The word of our Lord. Let me ask you a question. What do you do if somebody asks you to do kind of a dirty job? A job that's like not normally part of your routine or your job description? Do you grumble, at least inside, like, that's not my job. Somebody else should do that. I deserve better than this. I do that sometimes. And that's worldly thinking. That's thinking from the world's perspective, from the world's kingdom. In the world's kingdom, you think that greatness means being served. Being served, right? Others should do things for me. That's how the world thinks of it. And it's interesting, we don't have to be taught to think like the world. A couple of weeks ago, um, you know, we, we all share one bathroom. There's seven of us for one bathroom. And so that means sometimes there's, there's kind of a blockage for brushing your teeth, right? You, you, don't, you have to stand in line to use the sink. So my daughter, a couple of weeks ago, she's three. She's brushing her teeth, and I'm brushing my teeth, and we're outside the bathroom because somebody else is using it. And then we both finish brushing our teeth at about the same time. And so we're both heading for the bathroom, and she just kind of like sprints ahead of me and like blocks me and gets in front and then goes and uses the sink first. Now, I didn't teach her that. She's three, and she's already figured out how to serve herself and not serve others. And, and I do selfish things like that all the time. It's not, it's not that I'm better than her. It's just that she did not have to be taught that skill. But in Christ's kingdom, and I think this is the main point of this text, in Christ's kingdom, greatness is not being served. Greatness is serving. That's how it is in Christ's kingdom. See how it's backwards and upside down from the world? Greatness comes through service in Christ's kingdom. Now, I'm going to walk through our text by talking about a couple of visible realities, right? Things that are on the surface of the text that you can see in this story. And then we'll also talk about some invisible realities, some things that you can't see in the story, some things that are not visible or tangible. So first, what's the first visible reality? In verse 1, we see Jesus loves. Jesus loves. Verse 1, now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. I love that this chapter begins with love. The service that Jesus is about to perform, it's all flowing out of his love for these men. You can't actually serve genuinely without starting with love. And so that's where this starts. It flows out of his heart of love. And you can't reverse the order of this. You can't serve 
and hope that love follows. No, you, you love and then service necessarily follows. Notice the verse, notice who Jesus loves. He loves, it says, his own. He loves his own. Now, this doesn't mean that Jesus doesn't love those who are not his. I mean, John 3, 16 is still true. It marks the beginning of his ministry, the public ministry. Jesus loved the world. God loved the world that he sent Jesus. Jesus still loves those who are not his. But here in John 13, it's focusing in on those who are his, his bride, his disciples, those who follow him, who love him. These are the ones he loves. And then it says that he loves to the end. He loves to the end. That means he still loves his own today. That's you and that's me if we're in Christ. He still loves and he's still serving out of that love. My hope for you this morning is that through this text, you feel very loved by Christ. That you feel very loved. And notice one more thing about this verse. Judas is here. Judas is here still. He's not one of Christ's own. We see that later in the text. But he is still loved by Christ, and he is still served by Christ. Think what that means. If you're not a Christian, I hope that you still feel the love of Christ. You can become a Christian. You can be his. Judas is here. If you're not his yet, like he wasn't, you still can be. It's not too late. So that's the first visible reality we see in the text, is that Jesus loves Here's the second one. Jesus knows. Jesus knows. Verse three, Jesus knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God. Okay, Jesus knows everything, right? We already know that if we've been in church for a while. He knows everything. He knows that everything belongs to him. He made everything. God made everything through him and Jesus upholds the universe by the word of his power. So everything belongs to him. He made you, and he owns you. He made me, and he owns me. He owns every man sitting around that table. He owns everyone in that city. He owns everyone in the universe in in all time. Everything is his by right. It was given to him by the Father. So he knows all this, and doesn't stop him from serving. He knows this. He didn't just know what he was, he knew who he was. And he knew that he was going back to God and that serving his own, create, his own creatures would not threaten his dignity. It would not threaten his greatness. It would not diminish him. So unlike his disciples, he's not scared to serve. It's interesting, you know, a couple of months ago, my son asked for a pair of Heelys for his birthday. Um, you guys know what Heelys are? They're those shoes with the, the wheels in them so you can like skate around and like endanger people. Um, I, I got permission to tell the story. So he, he, got, he wanted a pair of Heelys for his, his birthday and they were a unisex pair of Heelys, right? So they could be boys or girls shoes. And so we got him these Heelys and they're awesome. Um, and he was wearing one time in front of uh, some of his friends and one of his friends said, hey, those are girl shoes. And so he was kind of bummed. He's like, man, these are, you know, they're not girl shoes, but he thought they were. And so he came to me, and, and I was like, buddy, they're, they're boy shoes, and you know who you are. You're a boy. Rock them, and then they're boy shoes. And so he does. He rocks them, and they're, and they're great. The point of that, though, is when you know who you are, you're not threatened by the stuff that the world worries about. You're not threatened by it. Jesus was not threatened 
by this stuff. So he could humble himself because his greatness was not jeopardized by lowly service. He's about to enter the glorious throne room of his father and be seated at his right hand as the victorious king of the universe. And he doesn't ask to be served in that moment. That's the most mind-blowing thing about this text, I think, is that Jesus knows where he is going, the text says, to sit at his father's right hand and be crowned the king, and he doesn't ask people to serve him. Man, I mean, wouldn't we at least ask for like a sympathy foot washing, right? Like, guys, I'm about to suffer. I'm about to suffer tremendous pain on your behalf. Can't you just like, okay? He doesn't do that. If it were me, if I'm being honest, I'd be like, eeny, meeny, miny, Judas, get down, wash my feet. He doesn't do that. He humbles himself. And that's the third reality that we see. The visible reality, Jesus humbles himself. Verse four says, he rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, tied it around his waist, poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and wipe them with a towel that was wrapped around him. He humbles himself. I love how one theologian defined serving. He said that serving is going beneath someone to prop them up. The opposite of serving is going above someone and using them to prop you up. That's the opposite of serving. That's like abuse. That's using people. That's what Judas was doing. He was using people for his own ends. We know from elsewhere in Scripture that he was a thief. He used to scrape off the top of the disciples' money bag since he was the treasurer. Jesus humbles himself. He uses himself to prop them up, not the other way around. So I have a question for you. Do you serve? Do you serve? As an employer, do you use your employees to prop you up? As a husband, do you use your wife or do you serve her? As a parent, do you use your children or do you serve them? As a wife, do you use your husband or do you serve him? Do you use your friends to prop you up and to fan your ego? Do you use your influence or do you, to, to be served or to serve? Jesus is modeling for them and for us in a very visible and tangible way his entire incarnation and earthly ministry. Listen to this. He rose from supper just like he rose from his throne in heaven. He laid aside his outer garments just like he set aside his heavenly glory. He clothed himself with a towel, the garb of a servant, just like he clothed himself in flesh. He washed dirty feet, just like he cleanses us from sin. This is the visible application of Philippians chapter 2, which says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God as a thing to be held on to, but he emptied himself, taking on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Jesus is modeling for them in a single moment what his entire life has been about. Did you hear what I said? He is modeling for them in a single moment what his entire life has been about. Humbling and serving. You can only love 
if you're humble. And you can only love to the extent that you are humble. Think about it. The more you love someone, the lower you will go for them. Isn't that right? That's why we, we, we serve our children and we serve our aging parents and we do hard jobs for them because we love them. The more you love, the more humble you can be. Christ was infinitely loving and that's why he could be infinitely humble. Can we follow that example? Can we do that? Humility is dying to your own wishes. That's really all it is. It's dying to your own wishes. George Mueller was a a man who was known for his powerful faith. And he was once asked why his faith was so strong. How did did your faith become like this? You know what he said? He said, there was a day when I died. Died to George Mueller. His opinions, preferences, tastes, and will died to the world, its approval or censure, died to the approval or blame of even brethren or friends. That's what it takes to be humble, is dying to yourself. Serving others looks like dying to yourself a thousand times a day. A thousand tiny deaths a day. Let me show you how it works. You know, Jason wants to sit on the couch when I get home from work. That's what I want to do while my wife cleans up or my kids clean up. But Jason is dead. I don't live anymore. Christ lives in me now. So what do I have to do? Jason doesn't want to have that hard conversation with the person because it will be uncomfortable or awkward. But Jason is dead. Christ lives in me now. So what do I have to do? What Jason wants doesn't matter anymore because Jason is dead. Think about it. It's impossible to serve others when you're always doing what you want because what you want naturally is to be served. That's what we want by nature, is to be served. The power to go low in service, the power to go deep in humility, the power to truly love someone comes through crucifying your desires on a daily basis, even hourly basis, and sometimes minute by minute if it's really hard. Crucifying our desires. So why did Jesus wash feet? Because he loves us, because he knows who he is, because he is humble, and there's another reason, to set an example. This is the fourth visible reality, to set an example. Verses 14 and 15, Jesus says, if I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet, for I have given you an example. Instead of fighting over who is the greatest, prove your love to one another by serving each other. The question, who is the greatest, has no weight in the kingdom of God. It's not supposed to be asked in the kingdom of God. It's important to understand how Jesus chose a gross job to set an example. This is like the cleaning toilets in our day. For for me, I hate emptying the kitty litter. It's like the worst job in my house. So for two years since we've had cats, I've successfully avoided or refused to to empty the kitty litter. It's always my wife's job or my kid's job. They always do that. Until a few weeks ago when I started studying this text. And it's convicting, right? So it's like, now who's doing kitty litter? I have to do the kitty litter. By conviction, I have to serve rather than be served. 
He sets the example by going really, really low, and then he calls us to follow him down. Think about that job that you hate or that job that you allow somebody else to do. Is that the low place that Jesus is calling you to go? The last visible reality, verse 20. Jesus sends representatives. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever receives me receives the one I send. I keep reading that wrong. Sorry. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever receives the one I send receives me, and whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. I promise I know grammar. Jesus sends people. He sends us. And if people receive us, they, if, that is, if they receive the message that we carry on behalf of Jesus, that means they're receiving Jesus. It's pretty simple. So think about it. Jesus is not physically present here anymore, right? He's up in heaven. That's where his body is, in one sense. But in another sense, his body is still present, in the sense that we are his body. We are his hands and his feet. His hands and his feet physically are, are in heaven, but we are his hands and feet here on earth. We represent him. So how will people see the servant heart of Jesus? They look at you. They look at you. That's how people will see what Jesus is like. The representatives of Jesus are the ones who show people what he is like. That way, they can either receive him, or at least with adequate knowledge of him, they can reject him. So here's a question. If we were to go through life serving people while we share the gospel. What do you think the effect would be? If instead of trying to argue people into heaven, we serve them and show them what Jesus is like by serving them with zero expectations, right? It's not like, I'm gonna serve you if you come to my church. I'm gonna serve you if you listen to my gospel pitch. No, not like that. Just serving them out of genuine love for them. What do you think the, expect, the, the effect would be? I think that many would receive Jesus They'd be like, man, if that's what he's like, if that's the servant heart of your Lord, I want in. I don't want you to miss this. If you represent Jesus, you can represent him in a way that is inaccurate, in a way that uses people, like Judas, or you can honor him by resembling him. By loving people and using your own body to lift up other people in humble service. Okay, so that's our first Passover, the text. Much more quickly, I'm gonna look at the things that are invisible in the text. I'm not making these up. It's not like we can't see them in the text. They're, they're just not things that you would be able to see with your eyes if you were there. This is the next one. The first invisible reality is that Jesus gives joy to those who serve. Jesus gives joy to those who serve. Look at verse 18. If you know these things... Blessed are you if you do them. Blessed are you if you do them. Now, in the West, we've made Christianity such a cerebral thing. It's like mostly mental or academic, or we can struggle for it to be that. We weigh evidence for the validity of Scripture. We examine proofs for the resurrection, and we logically conclude that there is a God and that Jesus died for us, right? It can become this mental thing. It can be very abstract, so that we so easily forget that following Christ involves your body. It involves your body. 
not just your minds. If you know these things, that's great. Blessed are you if you do them with your body, physically. That word blessed in the Bible has, has lost some of its, its, uh, its flavor in the West because we overuse it. We say bless you all the time when people sneeze. We say bless you as a greeting or a farewell. Uh, sometimes we say hashtag blessed, right? So it loses some of its flavor because we overuse it, I think. The Greek word for blessed is makarios. It means happy. It means happy. Happy are you if you do these things. Happy are you if you do these things. So that's weird. Jesus is saying, do gross jobs and you'll be happy. That's what he's saying. You will get joy. That's why we have that famous verse. It is more blessed, it is happier to give than to receive. These are promises of God. Do we believe them? Do we believe them? It is more blessed to, to give than to receive. You will be happier by serving than being served. That's either true or it's not true. Those are the options. So how does this work? You're sitting on the couch and you're, you're seeing somebody else work hard and do a job that you don't want to do. You don't want to get up off the couch. So how does this actually work? How do you put this promise into effect? You tell yourself, self, I will actually be happier. I will receive more joy by getting up and doing that hard job that I don't want to do than I will get from the joy derived from sitting on this couch and staying here. And then you believe that promise. And then you do it. You physically do it. With that promise in mind, knowing that joy will come. Let me press in for a moment of application here. The churches in America are full of people who are coming to church to be served and not to serve. Now that's a problem if you're a disciple of Christ. That's a problem. Now, I, I'm a guest speaker. I don't know you guys. I'm not, I'm not throwing any stones. Nobody's keeping track of who's serving and who's not serving, right? Or at least I'm not. I don't know who you are. Um, I certainly know there are many here who are serving. I, I, I know that. But there are opportunities, I'm sure, even in this church, for, for you to serve, for you to find joy, the joy of Christ by serving. Now, some of you are already serving, you're serving so much, and you might be thinking, I gotta serve more. That's not the point. For you, the challenge will be, how do I grow in my joy in the service I'm already giving? How do I grow in my happiness in the service I'm already giving to my church, to my family, to my community? The challenge for you is not to do more, but to be happier, to grow in your joy. All right, here's the last invisible reality in our text. The invisible reality that Jesus washes the inside of a person. He washes the inside of a person, not just the outside, not just the feet. And I, to, to talk about this one, I want to focus in on Jesus' conversation with Peter. In verses 6 and 7, it says, he came to Peter, who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered him, what I am doing, you do not understand now, but afterward, you will understand. That's our first clue that this is something invisible, right? Peter doesn't get it. He can't see it on the surface. It's not obvious to him, but he will get it later. Verse 8, Peter said to him, you shall never wash my feet. And if I were Jesus, I'd be like, 
Okay, Pete, can you be cool for a second? I'm trying to make an illustration here. This is a metaphor. Just listen and pay attention. I want you to take in the lesson. But, but Jesus is smarter than me and way more patient. Finish verse 8 and 9. Jesus said to him, answered him, if, you, if I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Peter, so extreme. Never wash my feet. Wash all of me, right? But I love Peter's heart. His heart is whatever gives me the most of you, Jesus, however I, have, I can get a share of you, do that. Whatever I have to do, I want that. Verses 10 and 11, Jesus said to him, the one who bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not all of you. Talking about Judas. Judas. So Jesus tells Peter, you are clean, you are mine, you have a share with me, Peter. You're already mine. In this metaphor, bathing means being washed in the atoning, forgiving, cleansing blood of Christ. Every person for whom the Father has given to the Son, Jesus is going to march to the cross for the next day. He's going to march to the cross and be sacrificed on a cross at the same time as all the sacrificial lambs that have come to Jerusalem are slain. He will be the last and the greatest lamb to be slain. The only true lamb that can really cover sins and can truly forgive them. The next day he is going to do that. He will, in less than a day, wash every Christian for all time of their sins, to cleanse them of their guilt, to bathe them in mercy, and to shower them with forgiveness, us with forgiveness, every Christian for all time. So Jesus is saying to Peter, once you've been bathed like this, you don't need to be bathed again. In fact, you can't be. You can't be bathed. I will wash you so sufficiently that you can't be so dirty to ever need it again. You can't sing your way out of this. It will be done. It will be finished. He will only die once, and no one will ever need to atone for sin ever again. And in fact, if you are cleaned by Jesus, if you are not cleaned by Jesus, I mean, you can't be his. If you're here trying to clean yourself, you go to church because I want to be clean for God, it's not going to work. Only Jesus can clean you, and he has to clean you. You can't do it yourself. If you're trying to clean up your act and make yourself good enough for God to accept you, you're going to be waiting for a very long time. Jesus cleans you. In the meantime, he's waiting for you. While you're working hard to clean yourself, he's waiting for you to come to him so he can make you clean. He died to make you clean. No penance will ever need to be performed. No pilgrimages taken. The Passover lamb was killed once for all. Cleansing is coming with the cross. That's what he's saying. Peter, cleansing comes tomorrow night for all time. So then, what's all this talk about needing to wash feet again? If the full body is cleaned by the blood of Christ on the cross, what is this washing of feet that has to happen in verse 10? If Peter is clean, why does he need his feet washed? And more importantly, do we need our feet washed? If we believe in Jesus and we're cleansed by his blood, do we need our feet washed, metaphorically? And what is the metaphor? 
If in this invisible reality that Jesus is speaking of, if bathing means cleansed by the blood of Christ, what does foot washing mean? I think the answer comes from elsewhere in John's writings. In 1 John chapter 1, John says this, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. He is faithful to cleanse us if we confess our sins. Do you see what John is saying? Jesus cleanses you once for all on the cross and it's over. You've been bathed at that moment and you're his. You can't be lost. But then we go tramping through the world, getting all this muck on us. People sin against us and we sin against others. And it sticks to us. We do this every day. Confession is that cleansing. Going to God and saying, I'm sorry, I blew it again. Will you forgive me? And he says, yes, of course. You're clean. It's also important to, to confess to one another. I hope you all have another Christian in your life that you're comfortable enough with and that is safe enough for you to confess your sins to. James says, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. We all need a Christian brother or sister like that in our lives, someone that we can confess our sins to and walk in the light. This is really important, especially for Peter. In light of the fact that the next day when Jesus is going to the cross, you know what Peter does? He's warming himself by a fire and a little girl says to him, aren't you one of the disciples? He's like, no, 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 I'm not a disciple. And then somebody else says to him, hey, I, I think I saw you with a Galilean. And he's like, no, you didn't see me with a Galilean. You, you're, you're mistaking me for somebody else. And then a third person says, you are one of his disciples. And he says, I am not. I've never seen the man. And then the rooster crows, and he realizes that he denied his king, his friend, three times. The words, you are clean. I mean, can he believe that in that moment? Am I clean? Just denied Jesus three times. Am I really clean? Was that true? Have you ever massively blown it, church? Like that thing you did 20 years ago that you still carry shame for? That thing you did last week or last night? Is it haunting you? And Jesus says to Peter and to you, Christian, you are clean. You are clean. I have made you clean. Those are words of life. Those are words of life for the Christian. I'm going to close by telling you a story of a, a Russian czar from a couple hundred years ago. It was Tsar Nicholas I of Russia. And one of his friends passed away, his close friend passed away. And so Tsar Nicholas took in his son and to raise him as his own. And as he was raising this, this boy to manhood, he he blessed him over and over and over again. And finally, when he was of age, he assigned this young man to be um, over the treasury in a, in a prestigious military fort. He assigned him to take care of the money and to keep him safe. He put him in this, in this fort. Well, the problem was that this young man developed a gambling addiction. 
And he gambled away all the money that the czar had given him. And then he began to to pick out of the treasury. Then one day he got word that the czar was coming to visit the fort, to visit the young man, and also to do an inspection of the books. So in a panic, this young man breaks out the ledgers and he starts trying to reconcile everything. And he did not realize until that moment how much he had actually taken. It was a lot. So as he contemplated this, he resolved to commit suicide. And he wrote out a suicide note. And he wrote it. It said, what a great debt. Who can pay? And as he was in turmoil about how he would end his life, he was so stressed that he fell asleep. He fell asleep at his desk. And and in his nap, the, the czar came. He visited the fort and he came into the treasury and he found this young man who was like a son to him sleeping at the desk. And he saw the ledgers opened and he saw what the young man had done, how much he had taken. And then he saw the suicide note and his heart was filled with sympathy and compassion for this young man. And so he wrote a single word on this note and then he left. And as the door closed, it awakened the young man And he realized that somebody had just been in there. And he looked down and he saw his suicide note with the additional word on it so that it now read, a great debt, who can pay? Nicholas. The czar paid his debt for him. This is what Christ has done for you. He has made you clean. We all have this sin that clings so close, but he has made you clean If you are his, you are clean. You are clean. And if you are not his, this is the kind of king we serve. This is the kind of king that we follow. Won't you follow him too? He is a good savior. Let's pray. God, I thank you so much for this church. I thank you for these brothers and these sisters. Lord, I pray that you, Holy Spirit, would apply this text to their hearts, that they would be able to go with their bodies and serve someone today. That you would make this a people of the towel. That this church would be marked by their service, not just to you, but to each other and to the world, to the lost. That the lost would look at them and see their good works and honor you and believe. We ask that you would do this for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Let me read you the benediction of your God, and then I'll dismiss you. This comes from the book of Jude. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless in the presence of his glory with great joy, to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time, and now and forever. Amen. I love you, church. Have a great Sunday. You're dismissed.